0: I have a trivia question for you today, but no sarcastic answers, okay? Um, uh, can you take me back to my first slide? I did something bizarre. I don't know what I did. All right. Can anyone name the first woman who has served as President of the United States? Preston, you can't answer. I think you know this. Anybody? The United States Yes, the United States of America. Yes, the country you're currently sitting in. All right, let me tell you a little bit about her. Uh, Her name is Edith, and um, she uh, did not love school. She was raised in a poor home in Virginia, and Edith left college because she found that college was a bit too cold for her. She found the dorms were a little bit drafty, and she did not like feeling cold, so she said, I'm going home where our house is just better insulated, or something like that. Uh, Over time, she chose to move to Washington, D.C. as a young single woman, and it was not long before she married a man who was very wealthy and very old. And as men who are very wealthy and very old tend to do, he soon died and left her all of his money which I think was a pretty convenient situation for her. And so she was now a very wealthy woman who owned uh, her husband's business. He was a jeweler in Washington, D.C., and he made a lot of money. And so she helped run the jewelry business, but also would go off to Paris, where she would enjoy uh, going to fashion shows and having the best newest uh, clothes that she could find. Um, over time, though, she uh, continued to live some in D.C. And one day, her and a friend went to uh, go to an appointment. Uh, she, her friend was dating a man who was a doctor. And so they went for a social event. And when she was there, she met her second husband. Uh, because he was a patient of her friend's doctor boyfriend. Uh, of her doctor boyfriend, right? So she's got a friend. The friend is dating a doctor, and one of his patients is at this social event. She meets him, they quickly fall in love, and sure enough, her, this man that she meets is Woodrow Wilson. Edith was the second wife of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, his advisors told her not to marry ha- uh, her because uh, his first wife had passed during his first term, and these two got married within about a year of his first wife's <laughs> passing. And they said that would be a scandal that would ruin his re-election, Is that uh, if he married too quickly after becoming a widower. Can you imagine us living in a world where that's all it took to not elect somebody is they married too soon after? Anyways, uh, it was a different time, a different age. And they were worried about her. And the thing that really bothered a lot of people in Washington is that Woodrow would share a lot of his information with her. He would let her in on secret security briefs and on international affairs. And she would be part of meetings with foreign dignitaries. As time went on, uh, Woodrow suffered a massive stroke. And for a period of his life, he was not doing well. Nobody knows exactly how not well he was doing, because Edith told Congress and the cabinet and the American people that Woodrow was fine, he was just very tired, and that he could only do his presidential business from his bedroom, and that she would filter all communication to him, determine what was important and what was not important, and bring to her husband only the things she thought he had the energy to be able to handle. As time went on, she would meet with dignitaries, she would meet with foreign ambassadors, she would meet with the cabinet, and they'd say, I really need to talk to the president about this. She goes, will you tell me what you need the president to know, and I'll let him know. And they would send in documents. And she would go into the the, the, uh, bedroom of the president. And she would come out and she'd go, oh, look, he made notes. And there would just be meaningless scribbles on the page, either because Woodrow's stroke had hurt his handwriting or because he wasn't cognizant at all and she was making up scribbles. And there's still a debate to this day as to whether or not Edith was telling the truth and that Woodrow was really, really awake and lucid and capable of making decisions Or if for about 18 months, Edith Wilson was just president of the United States. And she just did the job for her husband until he was ready to do it again. But she never knew. Because everything went in through her and out through her. There was no one that spoke to the president that didn't speak through Edith. And the reality of a situation is that when you do not have access to the king... The king's spokesperson becomes king. Right? If you don't have access to the authority, then whoever speaks on their behalf is effectively in charge. Now, Edith, to her dying day, she died in the 1960s, always swore up and down, no, it was him in charge. He made the decisions. I didn't do anything but keep his schedule clean. But there are many historians that think that is just not true. That <laughs> She just ran it for a while. But when you cannot speak to the king... It is the king's spokesperson who becomes king. All right, let's read a story from Mark. Mark 3, verse 1. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, This is a story around an issue that's very common in the life of Jesus, where the Pharisees and Jesus are fighting about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Sabbath is a day that is given to the Jewish people by God as a time for rest. And there was a lot of strict rules about what was allowed and not allowed so that you would respect God's desires for this to be a day of rest. To this day, it's uh, an issue. Modern Jewish people still, uh, usually in most versions of Judaism, practice the Sabbath in some way. uh, To give you a sense of how thoroughgoing it is, Uh, the best example I can always think of is a Sabbath day elevator. Uh, If you go to Jerusalem and you visit uh, Israel to this day, in your hotel, there will be an elevator on Saturday that is a Sabbath elevator. And that elevator starts on the first floor, and then it goes to the second, and it stops. And then it goes to the third, and it stops. It goes to the fourth, and it stops all the way up, and then all the way back down, stopping at every single floor. If you are an unexpected tourist, this is a painfully slow way to get to your room on the seventh floor of a hotel. But they do this because the rabbis have decided that pushing a button that lights up is doing work. It's quote-unquote making fire because when you push it, it turns on an electrical thing and somebody's got to run the electrical plant and it's work, okay? Does it not seem like work to you? That's fine. It's to the rabbis and they get to make the rules. So what they do is to make sure no proper observant Jew is making, doing any work by pushing any elevator buttons. You just make the elevator so it goes up and down to every floor and that way you avoid any work. There are massive debates about what technology counts as work and what doesn't. If you are Sony, you have to ship a bunch of products to a rabbinical technology center where they test <laughs> the stuff to see if your device counts as work so they can or cannot give a stamp on it that this is a Sabbath-approved appliance. It's a big deal. It still is a big deal. Uh, whether or not you could play soccer and if it differs if you're a professional athlete or not is another debate. And so Jesus is dealing with this situation, and he's constantly rubbing against these people because what he says is uh, he, he heals people. He wants people to get better. So he heals them on the Sabbath, and they go, you can't be the real deal because you're not obeying the Sabbath. You're not keeping the rules. That is clearly work. Helping somebody with a shriveled hand is clearly against what God would want you to do. And what Jesus does is really interesting because he makes it a very simple yes-no question. Uh, preachers hate this, okay? If you want to really annoy me in the q and I shouldn't tell you how to do this. Ask me a question that's just a simple yes or no that's impossible to answer, right? You know, like you have this big sermon with all these intricacies of all the theological details. And you're like, oh, so I, can I do it or can I not do it? That's not the point, okay? There is more discernment that needs to go on. But Jesus does that right here. He goes, what's better, to kill somebody or to save somebody on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees are going, these are my only options. Kill you know, murder and say, you know, and, and miraculously healing his hand are the only two things I can do on the Sabbath. But Jesus does this very much on purpose. He wants this ethical decision to be as sharp as possible. Are you gonna do good towards people or bad towards people? What what way are you gonna go? How are you going to act? And it's really interesting for us. We love moral ambiguity because moral ambiguity helps us to not actually have to do anything, right? If it's morally ambiguous, I can go, well, there was a gray area there, so I just went ahead and did what I thought was best. But Jesus goes, no. Are you going to do this or are going to do this? And he forces them into that dichotomy. And so he heals them, and immediately the Pharisees are now stuck in this big problem of what to do with Jesus. And their only answer is, we have to kill him. Now, as you read this story, this seems extreme. Okay, a guy's hand gets healed. This guy does some wonderful first aid, basically. You know, it takes away someone's disease. And your first response is, oh yeah, we should kill him. But you have to understand what's going on. See, for a really long time, the Pharisees were the gatekeepers to God. If you had a question about what you could do or couldn't do on the Sabbath, and you looked in the scriptures, and the scriptures were a little ambiguous, because let's be honest, as much as we love scripture, sometimes God doesn't totally lay everything out for us in certain circumstances, and we have these quandaries, these moral challenges, these theological um Debacles that we have to kind of get through. Like, what do I do in this situation? What's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? And they would open their Bible, and they weren't sure. And then there wasn't any audible voices coming from God to tell them what to do. And so the only place you could go was to the Pharisees and go, you guys are smart. You understand the Bible. You tell me what the right thing to do is. And there is a lot of power to be had in being the voice of God for people. When people are unsure And they come to you for the answers. There is something to be lost when some new hotshot kid out of Nazareth walks in the door and says, these people are wrong. Their approach to the Sabbath is wrong. wrong. All of you that have had to do these things that they told you to do, everyone in this community that's been living under the religious oppression of Pharisees looking down their noses at you for what you do on Saturday afternoon, they're wrong. The Sabbath is different. Earlier in, this, in, in Mark, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for people. People were not made for the Sabbath. And so there's a power struggle here. And the reason they're so angry and they're so willing to kill Jesus is when you don't have direct access to God, God's spokesperson becomes God. They were totally being an Edith Wilson to the whole world. Oh, you've got something you need God to work on? Here, bring it to me. I'll go into this holy place. I'll figure it out. And then I'll come back and I'll tell you what's, in, what's, what's real. Just as Edith Wilson managed to sort of be president of the United States by filtering all the access back and forth to, to the president, the Pharisees have said, let's funnel all this communication back and forth with God to us. We'll handle that for you. And there is a lot of power to be had when you've done that. There may be... um, This is why when we're talking about miracles and why would we talk about miracles and how do they work in our world and sometimes we even hear from church people like what would be the purpose of miracles? Why would we need them today? One of the reasons we need them is sometimes we need to hear from God. There are times when we need to hear God's opinion on something and not just the opinion of some expert, right? I say this as the preacher in front of a congregation, right? But there's a real issue here, is that often you will have people who want to tell you, oh, no, no, this is what God really wants. Trust me, I'll take care of it for you. And what we see is that over and over in Scripture, when there are these moments of confusion, God breaks through that confusion by speaking directly into people's lives just a few examples uh, that come to mind when there's a question about the sabbath and how the sabbath is to be kept is it Jesus way or the pharisees way miracles of healing shows that Jesus way is the way to be another example this is the blind man in john who's healed from his blindness and he goes to the sanhedrin and they go this man that healed you he's not a man of god and what's the response of the man who is healed? Pfft. I used to not see, and now I see, so kind of seems to prove he is from God, doesn't it? And it ticks the Pharisees off. The miracle is proof that Jesus should be listened to above the Sanhedrin. This is the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Why is Jesus raised from the dead? Because you had a man who claimed to be God and a bunch of other men who said he was blasphemous. And you don't know which of them is right until he gets up out of the tomb. The miracle shows who is correct in the dispute. One more example, early church. Do we let the Gentiles in or do we not let the Gentiles in? God sends the speaking of tongues and the gifts of the Spirit to flow out on Cornelius and his household. Why? So that when the two sides fight, they go, Gentiles yes, Gentiles no. One of them goes, these guys are speaking in tongues. God's made pretty clear what he thinks about this. Right? God breaks the tie in a lot of these stories. And I think this matters to us. There are things in your life that you are confused about and that you want direction in. Maybe those are small things like um, little decisions about what to do with your schedule or, um, you know, what patterns to have or uh, whether or not you should move to this house or that house or just all these other kind of things going on. And then those can scale up to bigger things like am I going to move across the country or not or am I going to start a new career or not or am I um, going to have another child or not? Right? These big questions. And you want, you want judgment. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's theological things. There are things that are debated. This church says you should do it this way. And this church says you should do it this way. And this church says that church is going to hell. And this church isn't, but they will be if they change their position. And like all this kind of stuff, right? And in the midst of it, we go, Oh, jeez. Who do I listen to? And very often, it is hard to determine whether you are hearing a prophetic voice that is the word of God to you. This is what you should do. Or whether you're hearing a Pharisee blowhard that wants you to treat them like their God. Trust me, I've got the right answer. Just listen to me. Obviously, that is a sinful way to look at things. The harder someone pushes on how obvious something is, the more I'm like, why are you doing that? And in those moments, we want guidance. We want help. And I think in those moments, those are times we ask, God, be involved. Show us your will. Make clear your path. And I really have made this personal commitment not to like make it small. I think that God could act in amazing ways. For some people, that may look like visions. It may look like... supernatural words of knowledge, that they just understand something, that they just have this thing from God, that they're reading a scripture and it just pops out of them, something they've never seen before, because the Spirit is leading them into it, okay? Um, For others, it may just be a, a general sense of the Spirit is just pushing me this way, no matter how many times I try to put this decision away, God just keeps pushing my heart that way. For some, on other occasions, it might be more um, mundane miracles, like people speaking into our life. Like we have some problem and we talk to a friend from 10 years ago, and they speak about the exact thing we're trying to discern. And in that moment, we go, oh, that's weird that they would talk about it. I don't know how it looks, but I know in those moments, I need God to intervene. I need God to show me what he wants. Sometimes this is just the circumstance miracle. Right now, you get, Many of you know the story, the building that you are sitting in, you are sitting in because a bunch of us were praying, oh God, where are we going to meet six months from now when we start this church? We know we're going to start it, but we don't know where we're going to be. And we drove by this place and we asked if we could use it once. And they said, we have been praying to put this on the market and to list it with a real estate agent, but if you guys want it, you can have it, and here's the very affordable price for it. And we were like, oh. Okay, Lord. I think that's what you want, right? And somebody else going to go, "Whoa, well, I don't know if God would like a blah 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 blah." And we'd be like, "No, he pretty much worked it out, pal. Sorry. Like we think we've got it figured out." And we need those moments. We need God to be part of the system. Cuz if God is fully separate from the system, if God is not going to interact in our world, if we don't expect God to be involved in our lives in some way shape or form, then all we're stuck with is the bouncers. Right? All you're stuck with is the Bible scholars or the experts or the consultants or whoever, those voices in your head that are screaming at you, do this, do that, do that, and always seem to want to get paid for it and who are always uh, just wanting to put themselves in the authority. The people that are trying to play God by, by restricting your access to God. And if God left us with a system where he never interacts with our world, he leaves us at the mercies of these guys that we just got to listen to whatever the biggest theological bully on the street tells us. And what we see in Jesus' story is Jesus goes, No! I will interact. The kingdom of God is near. God's reign, God's movement in your world is so imminent that he will do things that break all kinds of barriers. We're going to say break every chain. One of the chains we have is religious people that are trying to tell you what God is like who are telling you lies about what God is like. And in those moments, hearing the voice of God clearly, be it through something miraculous or something that just proves to you and shows you something you never saw before, we need that. Because otherwise our Father just looks down at us and lets these other people torture us with their silly opinions. It's important that we know that God does care. Um... I know I grew up in churches where we kind of freaked out about God talking to us directly in any way. So like, "What? Is he going to spill something out in your alphabet soup? You know, like, I feel like I actually have heard that sentence at some point in my life. And like, we just want to make sure that, and the danger is, right, that someone goes, oh, I was going across the clouds, suddenly spelled out, you know, real estate, therefore you need to buy a house from me or something, right? We just don't want anything ridiculous happening. But the alternate version that I think I was kind of fed is that my father in heaven was so busy doing important stuff that helping me in my confusion and helping me sort out what to do with my life was just something he was too busy to mess with. And that sounds terrible, but I think that many of us have had that moment where we've sat there and we're like, does God even care? And, you know, to be fair, I think sometimes he does not in as much as... He goes, hey, they're two great decisions, man. You pick for yourself. I don't care. They're great. You know, like, I'm with you either way. There is that in life. I don't think God has an opinion on everything. But the idea that he would just be distant, that he'd be aloof. My kids kill me because I really don't think I'm doing this that bad. But, you know, they just always want me to be available. So you're typing on your keyboard, trying to fit in some work. I think you guys know I've got the girls a little more than I have. And they come in, and they're like, uh, particularly the youngest. Dada, read? Dada, read? And she's got a book in my hand. I'm like, all right, am I going to support early literacy for my child, or am I going to get a sermon written? You know, like this is the debate. And I feel like this terrible, distant dad. Our father isn't like that. It's not like God runs out of time. It's not like God goes, listen, I'm working on this thing over in Ethiopia. I can't be with you right now. He's not bounded by the space. He's not bounded by the time. He can handle it. And so we need miracles. We need his direct intervention in our world so that when we have hard decisions and things we're trying to discern, we can hear from the Lord and not from some self-appointed expert as to what's right and where to go. And it's an important function of the miraculous, of the divine in our world to help us figure out which way to go.